You're listening to a message delivered at First Family Church from the series, The Kings and the King, Expectation in the Books of the Kings. For more information and messages, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Did you ever pray for God to save Osama bin Laden? Did you even want him to be saved? What if God saved Kim Jong-un? Are you praying that God would do that? Do you even want God to do that? Now, I am assuming, I think correctly, that they are both not born again. One is in the past tense. He was a declared Muslim. One's in the present tense. He is a dictator who accepts worship as a deity. I think we're safe to say that they're unbelievers. My question is not to, at this point, debate with you the status of their souls, past or present. It's to ask you a question and have you process with me something. Did you pray that he would come to Christ, Osama bin Laden? And are you praying that North Korea's dictator would be saved? Are you asking God to grant him repentance so that he would be reconciled to God? And do you actually believe God would save someone like that? Do you actually believe that God desires to save someone like that. You could take this same thought process for any number of people, whether they're globally famous or not, whether they're just individually known to. You could take the same thought process. Are you praying for people who are enemies of God to be reconciled through the cross of Christ? I think processing questions like this reminds me of a truth that we believe but often are unwilling or unable to fully comprehend because of their stark implications of which I just reminded you of them. Here's the truth that I want you to see, and we're going to kind of unfold this today, that God loves all peoples and saves anyone who trusts in Him alone. Now, not just with those previous two names, but with names that are probably no doubt flying across the airport of your mind, wanting permission from your control tower to land. With those names kind of zooming by, can we say this together? Together, you ready? God loves all peoples and saves anyone who trusts in Him alone. This truth is beautifully illustrated in 2 Kings chapter 5. Will you take your Bibles and turn there? We'll look at this one chapter today, and we will see this truth just emerge and surface, and I think it will massage our hearts. It will do us a world of good this morning to just explore and swim in this ocean of God's incredible love for all peoples and His incredible desire to save all who trust in Him alone. Let me catch you up to verse 8. We'll pick up our reading there in 2 Kings 5, verse 8. Let me catch you up to that point. We're in the middle of Israel's history. They are now two kingdoms, the north and the south. The north is known as Israel, and that's also used to describe the entire nation, so you've got to kind of keep that straight. The southern kingdom is known as Judah, and both are in massive decline. There's very few good kings that have come along lately. They're both involved in idolatry. The southern kingdom has more bright spots, but the truth is they're both headed, one for destruction, one for captivity. It's not a good day for the nation of Israel. One of the nations that's been beating up on the northern kingdom is Syria, and they're just dismantling uh, what's happening in Samaria. And one of the generals in charge of this that has brought such plunder to Israel is a man by the name of Naaman. He's a Syrian military powerhouse. 
In fact, so much so that in one of his raids, he actually took slaves back from the northern kingdom, even young girls. Naaman would not be your favorite character. He wouldn't be an Israelite's friend, all right? But that's where chapter 5 picks up with the story of the Syrian military general who had been Israel's nightmare and had taken even young girls back to his country as slaves. He, as good as he was militarily and as loved as he was in his own country, he had a physical ailment. It was leprosy. He was terminal. He was doomed to die. Leprosy was incurable. This bothered him and it must have been noticeable because he had one of these young slave girls in his household as one of the servants of his wife. And so Naaman's distress about his incurable disease must have been known because the slave girl says to Naaman at some point, if you were back in my land, our prophet could heal you. What a, what a, what a seedling of faith. In the middle of a foreign country. Isn't that amazing? Terrible times for Israel. But here's this this small testimony shining brightly. Well, it intrigues Naaman. He's like, hmm, I don't really care about your God. But I care about my body. Possible healing. Let's check this out. So, So Naaman goes to his boss, the king, and says, can I have permission to check in with the guys we're beating up on? I think he did that so there wouldn't be a sense of treason. Or maybe like, you know, he's uh, working with the enemy, so to speak. He's getting his boss's permission. The king says, sure, I'll even grant you a letter to go talk to their king. Maybe if they've got someone there who can heal you, I'll give you a letter. We'll do this on the up and up. But the king of Israel does not take the letter as an up and up request for healing. He looks at it as just a jab. Like, here you are, just poking at me, teasing me. You're trying to start a quarrel. You want another war because you know you keep winning. You want more help you want more plunder (laughs) and the king was so mad he tore his clothes let's pick it up in verse 8 second kings 5 but when elisha the man of god heard that the king of israel had torn his clothes a sign of his anger at the king of syria's poking and and what he considered to be teasing so to speak then elisha sent to the king saying Why have you torn your clothes? In other words, can you not see the opportunity here for God to save someone? You see, a king with a very small vision and very unscriptural perspective, he's missing the obvious, and you see Elisha now saying, wow, here's an opportunity for God to do something. And Elisha says, let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And what he means by that is he doesn't want his name known, but he's speaking there as a voice for God saying, I want you to know that there is a God in Israel. It's kind of resonating through this book, isn't it? Second Kings, that even in the midst of a spiraling country, God is still speaking. Here's the prophet saying, you let the powerful military general come our way, the one who has beaten us, dismantled us, and taken our young girls, you let him come, we'll show him there really is a God in Israel. I love his faith. Well, Naaman does respond in the positive. He came with his horses and chariots. You can imagine that entourage, right? And he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And look at Elisha's response. He doesn't honor this man in one sense. It's just a very interesting set of of, uh, uh, words here. And Elisha sent a messenger to him. (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the high-ranking military general, and he comes with all of his entourage, and, oh, can you check the door for me, sir? I mean, just, it just kind of sends a messenger, right? And the messenger even gives this message, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. No pomp, no circumstance. Almost like just a, a, a little note on a post-it note, right? Hey, here's the message, can you take care of this, and you'll be done. Back to business now. Well, Naaman isn't like that. He was, in verse, four, verse 11, anger, and he went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. And then he now references the idea to wash in the Jordan, which is Israel's dirty river. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? 
Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in a rage. (laughs) In other words, Elisha, you didn't save me. You didn't heal me my way, so I'm done here. But again, a no-name, kind of simple servant appeals to Naaman and says, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? In other words, can it really be this simple? This is an amazing thing. And you're just going to turn away in a rage and ignore him? And so verse 14 says, Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. According to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Say the last four words with me. And he was clean. Hallelujah. Amen. Wow. So my question then is this. Did what Elisha say in verse 8 come true? Did Naaman know that there is a prophet or is the point being that there's a God in Israel? Let's keep reading verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God and all his company came and stood before him, much like when he came the first time. And Naaman says this, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now remember who's saying this. This is the Syrian commander who has plundered the northern kingdom. And he's telling the prophet, I know that your God is right. If you think the confirmation hearings have been tense, imagine being in this situation, right? And so now accept a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. This is in direct contrast to what Gehazi does later. Elisha says, I'm not out for credit. I'm not looking for gifts. Naaman urges him to take it, but he refuses. So then Naaman says, well, if not, let there please be given your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. In other words, listen, I'm only going to worship Yahweh, but I have to go back and do my job. And part of my job is helping my master get to the temple of the false god Ramon. So when I help him, just know I'm not worshiping that God. Will you just pardon me? I mean, you can see that Naaman's heart is now suddenly turned to worshiping only God. Why? Because only God could do what Naaman really needed, healed from a terminal disease. The remainder of the chapter shows the contrast between Gehazi and, and uh, Elisha. Elisha didn't want any credit or a gift, but Gehazi did, and so he pursues Naaman deceives Naaman, receives some gifts, but in the end is actually judged for his leveraging of God's work for his own benefit. And he is struck with the leprosy that was originally on Naaman. And in fact, so sad that actually Gehazi himself and his offspring dealt with leprosy. Naaman was cured, though. This is an amazing story. It's an incredible narrative. What we see here is God doing through Israel what he promised from the very beginning, that he would make them a light to the nations. He's doing this through them, even though they are technically in a very terrible place spiritually, but through the small testimony of a servant girl in a foreign land and through a prophet with incredible faith, God continues to reach the nations through his chosen people. Can I just give you a couple of general observations first so you can kind of get the chapter and put your hands around it as a, as a unit? I think really you can see it in two parts. I divide the chapter in the middle of verse 19. I know some of our translations do it differently. I see the chapter dividing right in the middle of verse 19. I think prior to that we see Naaman's need, which is, in a simple form, God's salvation. This would be the plea in this first part of the chapter. Please accept, do accept God's salvation for his glory. Now, it came in the form of this healing, but the healing led the way 
to Naaman seeing that there's only one God who could really meet his deeper ultimate need. So Naaman's need is the primary focus in the first 19 and a half verses. From 19b all the way through the end of the chapter, we really see Gehazi's greed. And we see a, a servant of the prophet leveraging God's work for his own glory. This would be what we're not to do. Are you with me? So the, the chapter kind of has a positive half. Do accept God's salvation for his glory. And the negative half. Don't leverage God's salvation for your own glory. One is Naaman's need. The other is Gehazi's greed. But there are other specific truths here that I want to draw out this morning that I think would just encourage our hearts greatly. Specific truths that I think will point us back to the main truth of this chapter, which is what? That God loves all peoples and will save anyone who trusts in him alone. You see, this is essentially an Old Testament missionary story. It serves as a universal symbol of how God saves people. It's a historical event in time and space that displays many theological truths about God's work of salvation. This morning, I want us to delve into those a bit, and I think your heart will be so full of praise and adoration and worship that you will be uncontainable when you leave today. What do you say we dive into these five truths? Let's shine a light on God's saving work, can we? First of all, God seeks all kinds of people to save them from all kinds of sin. This is the first specific truth we see in this story. And I think it just really is, it comes to the forefront beginning in verse 1. Because, and actually the first word of verse 1, it's a name, isn't it? Naaman. He's not a Jew. He's not a follower of Yahweh. He's uh, got incredible power as a military general, but he's used that destructively, sinfully, and he's physically a sight to see. He's probably white. He probably has open sores. We don't know exactly. Um, when I say he's white, I mean because of his disease. All right, He's obviously Middle Eastern. He's a Syrian. But I mean, if his disease is whitened parts or not, if not all of his flesh, they're open sores at times. We don't know textually how bad his leprosy was. But he knew he had it. And he knew he was terminal. And yet, and I, I will not be able to explain this. I've been mulling this over for weeks. I've been meditating on this. It, this, it still just amazes me that somehow God was seeking Naaman. I mean, this should just cause you to pause and relish in God. There was nothing attractive about Naaman. Physically, spiritually, why would God go after the general who was actually plundering his people? I don't know if I can even answer the question. My thought, my mind has just been circling so many things about the story. All I can do is come back to this. God was seeking Naaman to save him. And he utilized the most terrible time in Israel's history, the slavery of a young Israel girl. And so many things we'd say, this is, this is terrible, but God used every bit of it for the salvation of Naaman, the Syrian general. It says to me quite clearly, God seeks all kinds of people to save them from all kinds of sins. Now, I want to talk to you just for a moment about this word kinds and the word peoples. You know, it's in our, our main take-home truth that God loves all peoples. You would think we would say people. But actually what we need to understand is that in a technical sense here, I'm using the idea of kinds and the idea of peoples to reference the idea of, of the different ethnicities that are all over the earth. This is actually the word used in Matthew 28 when it says we're to go and make disciples of all nations. It's the word ethnos. And I want to assure your, assure your heart this morning that, yes, God loves every person, undoubtedly. But it's from every peoples that God has promised to save at least 
one person. So there will not be a single people group, language group, ethnicity. You could choose your words here. There's different ways to express it. But there will not be a single people's unrepresented in heaven. Isn't that amazing? So, so we, I, we don't believe in universalism, but we do believe in representativism, if that's a word. This is how great the love of God is, that there is no race, skin color, nationality, ethnicity, or language to which God will not go to save someone. Revelation 7, 9 proves this. Look at the two words, every and the other word, all. This is what John saw. He saw a great multitude that no one could number from how many nations? Every nation or ethnos. From how many tribes? All tribes. From peoples and languages. They're before the throne, before the Lamb. Wow. I, I love the fact that God saves all kinds of people from all kinds of sins. But what this means is that there is no one beyond the saving grace of God. Church, in your American, Western, comfortable seat, hear me again. There is no one beyond the saving grace of God. Skin color, economics, geography, Make your list. There is no list greater than the grace of God and the cross of Christ. This week, Emily Miller texted me and she said, hey, do you got a copy of the book Different, Not Just Better? It's a book I wrote a few years ago and it describes the stories of nine people from First Family that God saved. Different ethnicities. Granted, most of them are European. But uh, Tamor's in there. He's definitely not European, right? <laughs> but different backgrounds, different uh, sins, different personalities. And yet, the, the common thread of the story is, look how God saves these people. I think she was on her way to make a visit to someone, and she wanted a copy. Brad's story's in there. And she just wanted this person she was talking to to know a Brad's story of how God saved him. I thought of that as I thought of Naaman. Aren't you glad that, that God loves all peoples? That he is seeking all peoples because he desires to save all peoples? Aren't you glad about that? You see, you can be and should be glad about that because guess what? God saved you. Well, I am assuming God has. Maybe not everyone in the room. There may be folks here who have yet to repent and believe and you're still considering the claims of Christ. But if you have repented of sin, believed in the name of Christ and God has saved you, you should be thankful that God seeks all kinds of people to save them from all kinds of sin because in that number is Y-O-U. We learn that by looking at Naaman, this Syrian general, humanly speaking, that Israel would never have put on their prayer list. <laughs> Can you imagine sitting in the home of a Jewish dad in these years of destruction and pillage? Who should we pray for tonight, kids? Pray for the guy that just ransacked our city. I'm not praying for him. I mean, you can just kind of sense the emotion and tension. You're not praying for Naaman. He's your enemy. And yet, that's exactly the person God saved. This is so convicting. I need to move on, though. Maybe you're thinking, okay, Todd, we, we're, we see that God does seek all kinds of people, to save all kinds of people from all kinds of sins. We see that. Naaman's a good example of that. How does God save people? That's our second truth from this text. God saves people through faith, not effort. Now I want you to notice, verse 14, a very interesting phrase. It says that Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. And look at the next phrase here. According to the word of the man of God. Prior to this verse, everything was according to Naaman, wasn't it? I want an entourage. I want fanfare. I want pomp and circumstance. And how dare you send a messenger? It had to be Naaman's way, but God doesn't save based on man's way. 
God saves in His way. And that way is through His own power according to His Word. Our role in that is to respond in faith. So we say, God saves people through faith and not effort. It's according to His power. Now, admittedly, He had to go and dip. You're right. But there was nothing powerful or supernatural in His dipping in the Jordan. There was nothing He could do except simply obey what God, through the prophet, had said. He had to trust God to heal him. The key was that He trusted what God said. It was God who was the powerful agent in healing him through faith. Faith was the avenue. God was the healer. You see, this whole experience, I believe, was very counterintuitive for Naaman. It showed him that it's not by what Naaman could do or by what Naaman was. It was only by what God could do and who God was. And spiritual healing, i.e. salvation, is exactly the same way. It's by faith, not works. It is a counterintuitive moment for anyone when they realize that it's all about trusting what Christ has done and that there's nothing they can do to earn any favor with God. The Bible is explicitly clear on this, church. And yet I think it's so odd that this is actually the consistent myth around the world. That you can actually earn your way to God. Every system of belief, every religion banks on this. And yet the Bible is explicitly clear that that is completely false. Here's just two references. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved, say it with me, through faith. It's the avenue, but God is the agent. And this is, say it with me, not your own doing. It's not about what you do. It is the gift of God, say it with me, not a result of works. Could the scriptures be any more clear? I doubt it. And yet, universally, talk to people. My experience has been... Eight, nine out of ten. Say, well, I'm working hard to get there. I think I'm good enough. John 1.13. Speaking of those who have received Christ, who have believed in his name. He says, the Bible says that he gave them the right to become children of God who were born. Watch these next phrases. Not of blood. In other words, you're not born into it naturally by your own birth process. Your name, who you are nor of the will of the flesh, not something internally you can muster up to get into God's kingdom, nor of the will of man. Someone else can't put you in there. Read the last three words with me. But of God. So God seeks all kinds of people and peoples to save them from all kinds of sin. And how does he save them? Through faith in him. So how does one exhibit faith, Todd? Let's follow this chain. Well, that's truth number three that we see from this story. Faith is evidenced through repentance. Now, I want you to stay with me mentally here, all right? Between verses 11 and 14, you find Naaman's repentance internally. You find him kind of working through what it's going to look like to not wash in his rivers and do things his way and simply obey God's way. And then Beginning in about verse 15, you find this repentance visibly kind of displayed. You see him turning from his idols, his way of thinking, to God's way of thinking. You see him turning from worshiping false gods to worshiping the one true God. That's repentance. It's turning from something to something else. And I think, though the text is not explicit about Naaman's internal tension, I think as you read 11 through 14... I wonder if he wasn't dipping in the Jordan with like, well, we'll see if this works. <laughs> I can't prove that, but I just wonder, like, what was Naaman thinking when he, when he heard this servant say, come on, Naaman, this is a great word. It's an amazing thing. He's just saying, go dip. Trust what God said. Do you wonder if he went down there reluctantly, perhaps, or maybe skeptically? I don't know, but I wonder. But I do know this, that once he dipped the seventh time and came up clean, he knew there was but one God who could heal and one God who could save. 
So, so this repentance is how we evidence our faith. Now, what did Nathan, excuse me, Naaman turn from and turn to? He turned from his own way, his God's false idols, to God's way. This was not an easy thing, by the way. You notice in verse 11, the word angry. Notice in verse 14, the word rage. Can I say to you that when the cross of Christ confronts the sin of a man or a woman, and they realize, wow, nothing I can do can save me, only God can save me, and I've got to turn from trusting myself to trusting God, that can be a moment in which there is, is, it's, an, uh, it's an odd offensive moment. Not because we're offensive, but the gospel in and of itself is offensive. It says you have no hope in yourself. And you need something from outside of yourself to save you. And that is Jesus Christ, his work on Calvary. And so people today, to be saved, to this metaphor here in, in chapter 5, this historical event that actually serves as a metaphor for God's saving work, it's simply showing us that we must turn from our way of thinking to God's way of thinking. It must be internally realized first that he's right, I'm wrong. And then it must be externally displayed through exclusive worship of God. This is how salvation works. It is Jesus or nothing. But when you have Jesus, you have everything your soul needs. It needs nothing else. He alone is enough for our full salvation. Can I show you how this principle is, is just consistently communicated as well through Scripture? The idea of repentance being the evidence of our faith. Look at some verses here with me. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. These believers in this region of the world in the first century, it is reported that they turned, watch this next phrase, to God from idols. Do you see that? This is not a synchronistic option here, church. This is an exclusive invitation to turn to God from idols. We don't add God to a list. We don't take his advice under counsel. We don't say, well, we'll put him in the, in the melting pot of religion so we don't miss some God out there. There is an exclusive nature to Christianity that is very offensive. There is one way, one truth, and one life, and it's personified in Jesus Christ. And so he says about these believers, you turned to God from idols. That's repentance. It's necessary for salvation. 1 Peter 1, 21 and 22 actually calls it obeying the truth. Look at these verses. He talks about how these believers were raised by God from the dead spiritually so that their faith and hope are in God. You see how you have faith there and hope? And then he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Did you catch that? So the writer here, Peter, is saying that obeying the truth is turning from trusting yourself and putting your faith and hope in God. The one who raised Christ from the dead. So it's called obeying the truth. And I think one of the best passages is this found in Romans chapter 10. Look how repentance is described here. As confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Nothing in the scripture says we add Jesus to a list or that we compile him along with other things. There's an exclusivity that goes along with biblical Christianity and repentance. Belief and confession. It's how we are, look at the last phrase, it's how one is saved. If you go on in verse 16, you'll find that Paul calls this obeying the gospel. So let me just kind of simplify this third point a bit. Repentance is not believing untruths and instead believing the truth about Jesus. So what are the untruths? That we can save ourselves. That we can work our way there. That our last name will give us some kind of credit. Or that our skin color. Or that our place of birth. Or that where we work. Or that our success or amount of money. You could compile a list here. None of those hold any credit with God. They earn us nothing. We repent from believing those, and we turn to believing that Jesus is God and that God raised him from the dead. At that moment, God saves us. 
Make sense? So God seeks all kinds of people to save them from all kinds of sin. He does that through faith, and faith is evidenced by repentance. Now maybe you're wondering, why such an exclusive avenue then? This seems like it's getting very narrow. That's a good word, isn't it? Narrow is the way that leads to life, Jesus said. So why is it so exclusive? I think the answer to that question is rooted in our fourth truth. And that's this. God saves people to worship Him. Let me add, you could put the word exclusively or only at the end of this sentence. God saves people to worship Him only. You see this beginning in about verse 15, don't you? Naaman knew, and I hate to use the word instinctively, but I want to use that word because I think it was brought about by the by the Holy Spirit. So we'll say he knew this spiritually, instinctively. That suddenly, as a result of God's healing and saving, he was to worship God, and he was to worship God alone. What's driving this? Listen very carefully. When God saves us, he saves us from ourselves unto himself. You need to grasp this, church. We become His, not ours. We're not someone else's. We are God's. And as such, He alone is worthy of our affections and desires and worship. This fundamentally changes the trajectory of our perspective about salvation. That suddenly, it's not about us primarily. We are the glad recipients of God's amazing work, and unashamedly so. But the ultimate point of salvation is not your better life. It's God's greatest glory. You see, he saves us, watch this, not to bring weight and attention to your name. He saves us to bring weight and attention to his name. And this is exactly why we lose our life in his. We give away our life for his life. His mission matters more than our comfort. Titus 2.14 describes this well. Just a simple phrase in there that I think you should be able to just see this. Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all, all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people, say it with me, for his own possession. When God saves us, he purchased us unto himself. And church, this is exactly why missions exist. Why are the where they are? Other families in our church, other partners within our church. Why do we look around us in our own city? Why do we look within the quadrants of Ankeny, the metro area? Because there isn't yet full worship of God among all peoples. When that occurs, we will no longer need missions. Until that occurs, let us be about being the ambassador of God to peoples everywhere so that he is fully worshipped. Let us give our lives to God's purposes instead of expecting God to give himself to our purposes. Church, I hope you are contemplating what this means. This affects our time, our wallets, our relationships, our pursuits, that God has saved you unto himself for his purposes. And so within this body collectively, we start right here with our closest people. How can we reach southeast portion of Ankeny? How can we partner in with schools and others and people to get the gospel to as many people in the southeast part of Ankeny as possible? How can we go to the northwest, the northeast, the southwest? How can we go outside of Ankeny? How can we reach... Nationally, how can we reach internationally? Those are all things we think about, but you know what? It won't happen in North India if it's not happening in Ankeny. I've learned you won't be concerned for the globe if you're not concerned for your neighbor. Oh, you might write a check, save your conscience, but will you give your time to knock on your neighbor's door, to have lunch with your coworker? to go out of your way for the person closest to you to talk about what matters most, the salvation of their soul. And after all, it does matter because God seeks all kinds of people to save them from all kinds of sins. Yes, the folks you work with, the folks you live near, they matter to God. 
Do they matter to you? This realization probably has some of you wondering, lastly, I think God takes saving people pretty seriously. (laughs) It's so exclusive. It's a priority. Maybe God takes this very personally. I would say he does. I think that's the last truth I want to share with you about how God and why God saves people. It's truth number five. God will not share his saving glory with anyone else. He saves people unto himself for his name's sake, and he will not share that. And this is the point of the sad ending in 2 Kings 5. We see Gehazi really leveraging God's salvific work to try to make a name for himself or to gain some possessions for himself. And um, it shows a sinful, selfish perspective on Gehazi's part. One rooted in actions that were looking out for his glory, not God's. And he was judged for it. This reminds me, to be frank with you, of what happened to Herod in the end of Acts 12. When the scriptures say for us specifically, because he did not give God glory, what happened? He was eaten with worms. Can I warn you? Church, hear this. Do not try to squeeze in on the credit line when it comes to how God saves people. Salvation is wholly and totally and solely and completely a work of God's sovereign, amazing grace. When it occurs, he may have used you as an instrument, a vessel, the means in some way, but we take hands off and we say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Let me be clear with you. In saving people and as well as in sanctifying them, God's own glory is his main goal. And he's right to do that. He's God. So there's not a single selfish aspect to his pursuit of glory to his own name. There's not a milli ounce of of unrighteousness in that pursuit. And so if God's own glory is his main goal... In saving and sanctifying a people unto himself, it should be our main goal to bring weight to who he is by what he does. We should allow all that is and all that happens to us to shine a light upon God, not us. That's why I'm such a, uh, I'm not a fan of the phrase, I found God. I'm not a fan of the phrase, God is my co-pilot. If you have those bumper stickers, let's talk. You didn't find God. God sought you. And God's not your co-pilot. God owns your life. May God help us to release any sense of trying to grab any credit or glory. Let me lay some verses upon you. And I know I've given you a lot of verses, and that's good. If you want these, maybe just... Check with our office. They'll give you a list of these, I think. We'll figure out how to do that. But here's some verses that I think should, should, should captivate you and alert you to the real posture you should have as you consider God's saving work of all kinds of peoples from all kinds of sins through faith and repentance in Jesus alone. Psalm 25, 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. I don't understand that verse because I would think God would pardon me for my sake, wouldn't you? Like, I need relief. I need forgiveness. But that's not what he says. God actually pardons us, not primarily for your sake. God pardons you for his name's sake. Wow. That's just so humbling. It's so perspective setting, isn't it? How great is God that he would reach down to lowly sinners and save us for his name's sake. Isaiah three times talks about this very thing. Chapter 42, verse 8. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. So no wonder he saves for his name's sake. He wants and deserves all the glory from that act. Isaiah 43, 25. 
I, I am he who blots out your transgressions, say it with me, for my own sake. And I'll not remember your sins anymore. Yes, we are these glad recipients of God's work, but God's work is primarily aimed at showing that he is that. He is God. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. Four times he uses the phrase, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And then lastly, in Ephesians chapter 1, three times we find this phrase in verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14. That God has done his work in us, say with me, to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glory. Again, to the praise of his glory. Let there be no question at First Family Church. God saves people for his glory. As we watch that happen, man, we should rejoice and celebrate, no doubt. But let us not for a single minute try to squeeze in and grab some of that. You see, seeing a God who rightly lays claim to the glory that comes from a saving sinner should move us to a posture of no boasting. I, for one, have no desire to take a single ounce of credit. And that's not just rooted in a healthy fear of God, a reverential awe. It's also rooted in the actual facts. I can't take credit for something that I didn't do. I was a 14-year-old redheaded kid listening to the gospel, thinking I was good enough Adding to my list of self-righteous acts, being in a good home and a good church, I was a good kid. That'll count. And then God revealed to me the lostness of my soul and my eventual destination, which was hell. Oh, a good redheaded kid in a good home and a good church? Yeah. If you don't believe in Christ is the only way, repent through faith. Hell is your destination. It's full of people with good intentions, with a list of good works behind them. And God in his mercy awakened my soul to realize nothing about my life would earn any favor. And that day God radically saved me. So I'm not just saying I did nothing because I'm healthily afraid of God in the right way. That's the facts of the situation. All I did was respond in faith to what God already did on my behalf through Jesus Christ. Salvation is wholly a work of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father plans it. The Son purchases it. The Spirit applies it. And I'm simply the glad and responsive recipient of the Trinity's passionate pursuit of me in my lost and unreconciled state before God. And the same is true for you if you're born again. So no wonder Paul would state to both the Corinthians and the Galatians, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.31 Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So these five truths that shine a light on God's salvation from this Old Testament story in 2 Kings 5. These are five soteriological elements. You may call them salvific principles. But they actually bring us back to the overall essential point that I want you to see today in this story of Naaman. That God loves all peoples. And he will save anyone who trusts in him alone. That includes you. Is your heart resonating with praise to God now? Is your response almost uncontainable? That regardless of what you've done, where you're from or where you're going, God loved you and sought you and saved you from your sin. Mine is. I'm so internally and deeply grateful for God's work on my behalf through Christ. You see, Christ has done everything necessary to do exactly that, save you. He did this by living and dying and rising again so that you would not suffer the penalty of your sin. Instead, He suffered it. He took your sin. He took your place. 
And he now, watch this church, he now commands all men everywhere to repent. I'm not just inviting you to be saved. I'm urging you to obey God and repent and be saved. After all, there's nothing you can do anyway. But Jesus Christ has done it all. And anyone who trusts what he's already done, God grants salvation from sin and adopts them as his son or daughter. This is the truly remarkable thing going on in the world right now. That God saves sinners. It's not confirmation votes, MLB playoffs, NFL standings, midterm elections, global summits, or denuclearization. It is rather that in the midst of all that is happening in the world, God is doing what only He can do around the world. Save anyone who trusts in Him alone. Remarkable. Unexplainable. Unbelievable. Inexhaustible. Undeniable. So much so that, to be quite frank with you, I confess, I don't fully understand why God saves sinners. I can preach every week about it. It's probably my favorite subject. But I have to be frank with you. I don't fully understand it. Is that okay to admit to you? I don't. I don't know why God would save us. I don't fully understand how God does that. But I am fully convinced from Scripture and deeply grateful that He does exactly that. Saves sinners who trust in Him alone. Have you trusted Christ alone through repentance and faith to meet the leprosy of your soul and to save you from what you cannot save yourself? I urge you, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and be saved. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.